Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Grant Haver, and I want to introduce you to the newest podcast on the DSR Network, Next in Foreign Policy. Every other week, Zoe Weinberg and I talk with new and emerging foreign policy experts about the issues of today and tomorrow. We've covered everything from the war in Ukraine to the impact of pop culture on policy. So if you want to better understand the people and ideas that will be shaping the debate in Washington and around the world for years to come, check us out wherever you find your podcasts. As you've come to rely on Deep State Radio's in-depth expert analysis, we hope that you will consider becoming a member to support our efforts. Members receive access to exclusive bonus content on Tuesdays and Thursdays, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our new Ukraine Daily Brief newsletter, delivered to your inbox each evening. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and enter code MARCH2022 to receive 28% off a monthly or annual membership. Thank you. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and I am in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where it's getting colder and colder. Today, we are joined by... Our old friend, Ed Luce, who's been off writing a book, probably done now, right, Ed? Nowhere close, but um, thank you for the encouragement. (laughs) Yes, no, we're all here to encourage Ed, and also encouraging Ed today will be Caroline Atkinson. Caroline served as the Deputy National Security Advisor for International Economic Affairs during the Obama administration, and she's currently a Senior Global Strategist at the Rock Creek Group. Hi, Caroline. Hi, David. And we are also joined by Ben Style. Ben is a senior fellow and director of international economics at the Council on Foreign Relations. Does anybody want to start with encouragement for Ed on his book? <laughs> no, <laughs> I'll, please. I'll, I'll shout, I'll give him a shout out because I'm so impressed with anyone who writes any book. And Ed has already written distinguished books. So I'm sure the next one will be great. And you just got to finish it. How hard is that? It's exactly. not hard at all. Thank you for your encouragement, Caroline. I, I, I'll take it in full. Excellent. Excellent. I echo that. We're here to talk about another dimension of the uh, conflict in Ukraine and the broader, I think, emerging conflict, which might be characterized as the second Cold War. And in particular, the economic tools that are available to the U.S. and the West to exert pressure on Russia. Today, the United States and the Allies announced a new set of sanctions that targeted 400 entities and individuals in Russia, including the members of Russia's parliament, the Duma. And I think we should start with 
current events, and then we'll leap off from there. Ed, what do you think of what happened today? It's impressive. I got, you know, Caroline and Ben are infinitely more informed on this, these questions of how you make sanctions workable, all the plumbing that's required. So I, I'm impressed of the degree of unity that the West is showing, but I'm, I'm, I'm worried by the fact that so many countries, not just China, but India, Brazil, Indonesia, Turkey, are saying they will not comply with sanctions. They do not believe that this is the way to resolve disputes and that therefore this is going to be very leaky. And I noted, I read earlier Ben's very good piece in Foreign Affairs about how China, your forensics of where Russia's foreign exchange reserves have been, its US Treasury holdings have been going in the last few months, and your seemingly very well-founded suspicion that China is actually managing them through Euroclear in Belgium on Russia's behalf, and that therefore it has access to a lot more dollars than we might think, reinforced to me both the complexity of being effective, of having a really tight net, but also the geopolitics of this, which is, which is quite disturbing. We're not as globally unified as we might like to think. So right. I really have questions there for Ben and Caroline. Well, we will, we, will, we will get to those questions. Of course, you can ask any that you like. And of course, there are other countries that you didn't mention, the countries in the Gulf, Israel, other countries that have not agreed to go along with this. I want to ask one more question on what happened today, and then I'm going to turn to Ben and use a discussion about his excellent article in Foreign Affairs as a jumping off point. But Caroline, you've had to grapple with issues like this before. And the Western alliance, while remarkably unified um, in, in applying pressure together at the moment. And while they announced a series of new measures today, also demonstrated some of additional challenges beyond those that, that Ed mentioned when the, the Germans and others made it clear that they're not going to be able to go along with some of the sanctions on, on, on Russian gas and oil, which of course provides Russia with hard currency, which they can uh, use for a variety of, of needs at the moment, including waging this war. What's your take of the state of the sanctions regime, Caroline? Well, as you know, I or you may know, your listeners may not know, I was involved uh, working in the White House in 2013, 2014. And this is completely different from then, both in the fact that the United States was so prepared. We were not at all prepared at that time for the Russian invasion. But also, most strikingly, the degree of unity that you've both referred to amongst the West, and in particular, Germany's view. I agree that Germany is now, and, and their industrialists are pointing out that it would really be impossible and very dangerous to uh, have an oil embargo, a gas embargo, and that implies some leakiness. But there is a massive change from how it was in 2014 when we spent, we, the United States, spent weeks and months trying to persuade Germany and France to move against Russia. And another difference is that back then, we in the United States did not want to hurt the Russian economy and the Russian people. We perhaps naively believed that the best way to get change was to go after Putin's cronies directly. So we carefully crafted sanctions that did not affect the Russian banking system in general, that did not affect the Russian people. 
And now we're in a different world. So I'm impressed by the strength of the sanctions, the depth of preparation, and the agreement amongst the West. However, I think the point you you make about there's a limit to it is important. And Ed's point is really important because, as he put it nicely in his piece, the West can mistake its own unity for a more general world consensus. And I guess if I think about sanctions, I remember the phrase, sanctions don't stop tanks. And I think the president just said, you will never deter Putin just with sanctions. So sanctions can only be a part of this battle and certainly not the whole part. Yeah, having said that, I read a story uh, day before yesterday which seemed to suggest that some of the sanctions were stopping the Russians from building tanks because they're actually not getting some of the parts they need. And as their supply of tanks is depleted much more rapidly than they expected it to be and expected it to be in Ukraine, some of these sanctions, which, as you say, are an order of magnitude greater than anything we've seen such so far, have, have actually had some teeth. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And they, in general... The, I think the pressure will come not so much from internal opposition, although that's obviously a part of it, you know, do people get fed up in Russia, and more through the military side. Yeah, so Ben, picking up on this, and if you want to comment on anything that's come so far, feel free to. But, you know, I thought the thing that was striking about your peace and foreign affairs, which actually sort of triggered me to say, let's focus this podcast on, on this issue was not just the forensic work you did and in looking at how the Chinese may be able to help the Russians out of this, but the bigger question it poses, because, you know, I've been involved in countless discussions, as have each of us, in which somebody made the point, sanctions don't work. And that point was always based on the thesis that you would really have to have kind of universal sanctions to exert real pressure. And that was almost always impossible to do. There were several exceptions, you know, the South African example is often given as an exception to some degree, but there's a lot of sort of congratulations within the West about the scope of these sanctions and the unity on them, but there seem to be some gaping holes. And I, I thought maybe Ben, you could talk to what you see those, those holes as. First, with regard to your point and Caroline's point about the importance or relative importance of of Western unity, North Korea, we've sanctioned them for many, many, many years. We've been quite unified about that, and it hasn't changed North Korea's policy towards developing nuclear weapons because the government considers it fundamental to its existence. In the case of Iran, however, you've got a more subtle story. When the West was united in imposing sanctions on Iran, we did at least manage to bring Iran to the table and um, conclude maybe not a perfect deal for suspending Iran's nuclear program. But I think we were in a lot better place in terms of, of slowing it down and possibly giving time for regime change in Iran. So I think that was quite significant. Now, Caroline was talking about 2014. What's I think is very welcome about the current sanctions on Russia is take 2016 to 2020 uh, under the Trump administration when the West was completely disunited and take Iran. 
when the U.S. pulled out of the Iran deal, not only were these new sanctions not multilateral, but the Europeans actively opposed these sanctions. As Ed and Caroline know, the Europeans went off and started redoubling their efforts to build an international financial settlement system that would avoid the use of the U.S. dollar. So the U.S. couldn't impose this sort of unilateral global sanction regime. So this is a big step forward. I mean, the fact that the West is as unified as it is, is symbolically important. And look what we've accomplished on the military side. For decades, we've been bludgeoning Germany to spend far more on its um, military. And over almost overnight, Germany has made major credible commitments to um, buttressing its, um, its military and military spending. But with regard to sanctions broadly, they do have a poor record of changing the foreign policy of the target country, particularly when the regime, the target regime considers that foreign policy to be fundamental to its existence. I do think if the sanctions are going to be effective over the coming months, they're not likely to be effective in, in forcing Vladimir Putin to back down and withdraw his troops and go back to the status quo ante, but may very well be effective in beginning to mobilize opposition to Putin, not from the Navalny's and the, the opposition outside the regime, but from within the regime. Think of all those in the middle stage of the careers, you know, men and women in their, in their 40s who are aspiring to lead a great country at, at some point, they may must be absolutely despondent to see what's happening right now. And so I think sanctions can be useful in beginning to galvanize some sort of opposition to Putin from within the regime. But to the point that you raised about our routine over-evaluation of the effectiveness of implementing of sanctions from the implementation perspective, they tend to be far more porous than politicians are willing to acknowledge. Politicians love to impose sanctions because they look tough. It's a way to say to your constituents, we're doing something serious. We take this problem seriously. But the electorate rarely focuses on whether anything is actually being accomplished. Now, the financial sanctions are undoubtedly exceptionally porous. Russia has many means for making international payments. They don't have to use the U.S. dollar. Russia holds about $140 billion in Chinese bonds, for example. Russia has about $140 billion in gold reserves that it could easily use as a form of international payment. And given that Russia is such a major force in the international oil and gas industry, it can engage in barter trade as well. Now, what I've uncovered on, on my side is the ways in which Russia almost certainly has for many, many years, going back to at least 2018, parked many tens of billions of dollars in U.S. Treasury securities in Belgium. That's all we see from the perspective of the U.S. government, Belgian holdings of U.S. Treasury securities rising. What that is, is a large international custodial bank domiciled in Belgium called Euroclear. And it is a very simple for government entities to park U.S. treasuries at Euroclear without Euroclear ever knowing 
that those entities are involved. That is, Russia and I believe China almost certainly used multiple private banks, or in the case of uh, the PBOC in China, the Chinese central bank, state-owned banks as intermediaries with Euroclear. And if we want to get serious about restricting Russia's access to U.S. dollars, we have to do a far better job of being able to detect such activity, not just in Euroclear, but in the Cayman Islands, which is also a major offshore domicile for U.S. Treasury holdings. So that's a great overview of the substance of what you were talking about. And it touches on a whole raft of of points I'd like to make. But Ed, you indicated a moment ago that you had questions. And I don't want to put you on the spot, but if you've got questions, Ed, go ahead and ask them. The implication of you know the fact that the West, uh, however porous, and then you've described it well, Ben, the financial sanctions are there is a there is political unity that uh, from the West that sanctions are a very essential tool in depriving Putin of both political support at home but also foreign exchange to fund this war. But if if we're right in thinking that there's not going to be a global tightening, then that implies there's going to be secondary sanction, sort of a metastasizing of secondary sanctions against many countries and entities within those countries around the world, which is something I don't think we've begun to see on this scale, which could have all sorts of consequences. Uh, am I right in, in thinking that? And, and what well, would the consequences be? I think it does depend on decisions. So far as I understand, and Ben may well know more, there is caution certainly in Europe, but also in the United States, about extending secondary sanctions. But I also think there is something of a halo effect around sanctions, because there are some institutions that don't want to engage with Russian companies or politicians or whatever, because of a fear that they may get caught up. Now, over time, I I read uh, one optimist saying, over time, that will tighten things. If you're cynical, you can think actually over time it will loosen things, rather like the UK was very gung-ho about sanctions in 2014, but we know London Grad, as it's sometimes called, is uh, a place and the overseas territories and so on uh, make it very easy for even sanctioned individuals to park their money through, you know, in London real estate or elsewhere through that system. And I think that as people become aware that that sort of sanctions avoiding is possible. There is a temptation to do more of it. But two points against that. One is that I think one of the really interesting things that we've seen is that private companies have pulled back, at least so far, more than they're required to. And that's particularly noticeable in the case of BP and Shell that have, you know, that stand to lose a lot of money and to have to write down their assets considerably. They didn't have to take those steps, but there was kind of shareholder pressure, consumer pressure to do it. As I understand it, Total in France has not yet (laughs) joined that consensus. And uh, uh, the Ukraine president, uh, Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky, of course, yesterday or whenever it was this week, appealed to France to uh, do a better job or do a stronger job of pulling out a private sector support. But I think the private sector companies in the West getting forced away from Russia is is pretty important. 
The other thing is that part of the sanctions, which doesn't get mentioned so much sometimes, is not just financial sanctions, but export restrictions. And that's why the Commerce Department in the United States is very important in uh, how they determine which goods can be sold overseas and to whom. And that we know that Russia needs to have more reinforcements of kit. And if they find that difficult to get, that will also be, you know, that's also relevant. I mean, maybe they can get it at any price. You know, there are arms dealers around, but that just costs them more. It's just like maybe they can sell their oil and gas to somebody or another, but they're selling it at a discount. So those two things, they're paying, have to pay more to get around sanctions and they have to receive less, you know, all add to pressure. I would say, by the way, as a former Commerce Department employee, having done five years of these podcasts, many of them with Ed, I don't believe we've ever heard the phrase, that's why the Commerce Department is very important. <laughs> um, but, but, but I'm you know, glad, glad, to, glad to hear it, how, however you know, infrequently it's invoked. I would add, of course, you know, part of the theory with the export control sanctions, the export-related sanctions is Russia doesn't manufacture certain kinds of things like chips. Yeah. And, and so if they want to maintain anything like not just a military, but a, a modern techno- a modern economy, they, they need access to those things. Ben, if, as, as you pick up on its question, I would just point out that the Germans, while deflecting on the issue of energy, did bring up today the issue of China. And they did say that they felt that if China is, you know, helping Russia in all of this, that there, there should be serious consequences for China. Needless to say, they were not specific about the consequences. But I, I just, you know, I, I throw that in there prior to your response to Ed's question. It's much, much, much more difficult for us to um, uh, discipline China. So I, I actually think it's from a diplomatic perspective, it's a mistake to draw public attention to China because in, at the end of the day, we're going to fail. I think quiet diplomacy is really a much more effective way to go there. With regard to um, Ed's piece, which was really very, very useful in emphasizing that the West is not the world, you made the point in your article, Ed, that if we look at the, the UN vote, on uh, sanctioning Russia, countries representing more than half the world's population was either against this or abstained from it. That's really very significant, and we can't forget that. And yesterday, I met with a a former top European diplomat, one well-known in this country, who, who emphasized precisely the point that Ed was making, that we should not forget about the deep level of resentment towards what's seen as the arrogance of the West in much of the developing world, he emphasized, particularly in, in, in Africa. So, you know, we can congratulate ourselves for our unity, but we're really going to have to do a much better job of outreach to the rest of the world if we want to be effective. This diplomat, for example, told me about how um, uh, he had made an from his country's perspective, an important speech years back in which um, Cuba was a, a target. And he said the Cuban UN ambassador came up to him afterwards and said that was really a very, very good speech, but then said, I would love to hear you make the same same speech to Saudi Arabia. 
In other words, about human rights violations, meaning you in the West have no credibility because you're totally hypocritical. You'll make that speech towards us because there are no political and economic consequences, but you won't make that same speech directed at Saudi Arabia because you need their their oil. And I think that's an important point we should bear in mind. From a longer term perspective, we also need to think about what financial sanctions do in terms of how the rest of the world adapts. For years, we've been talking about SWIFT ban as a a form of nuclear option, right? Well, we're there and we're beyond it. We're not not only putting in a, a SWIFT messaging ban against Russian banks, but we're sanctioning the Russian central bank. Of course, we use that kind of strategy, what the United States did with um, with Iran, but the Russian economy is, is vastly larger, seven times larger, am I right? Maybe, maybe it's even more than that than the Iranian economy. So it's really very significant. And so the message we've sent to the rest of the world is that you better take more seriously the longer term task of weaning yourself off dependence on the U.S. dollar because it's dangerous. The U.S. government in particular can cut off your oxygen supply at any moment. And so using this tool at this sort of level is in effect like overusing a very powerful antibiotic. The antibiotic can be very, very effective against a a given bacterial strain. But if you overprescribe it, you overuse it, you naturally encourage that bacteria to mutate into strains that are resistant to the antibiotic. And, and certainly we're going to see the same sort of thing developing in the international financial sphere. You are going to see countries looking to diversify the way they make international payments. And there's a symbiotic relationship between the currency that denominates international trade and the currency that denominates foreign exchange reserves. It's not an accident that a roughly 60% of world foreign exchange reserves are in dollars, and roughly the same amount is con- of trade is conducted in U.S. dollars. So things tend to go together. So we have to be aware of the fact that we are encouraging countries to begin to explore alternative means of making those payments. They may be alternative state currencies, like using the RMB. They may be going back to some form of gold as a major international reserve. Remember, in the 19th century, we didn't ship gold back and forth across the oceans. We moved it from one side of the vault in the Bank of England to the, another side of the vault in the, in the Bank of England. And today, it's even easier. It's just digital entries. We don't even have to physically move the gold unless we want to do that for show. We've got cryptocurrency. We know um, uh, North Korea has become a, a major force in international computer hacking. And one of the purposes of this hacking is to steal cryptocurrency. Now, if you consider Russia's capabilities in this sphere compared to North Korea, there's no doubt that if Russia got desperate, it could do an enormous amount of hacking in the cryptocurrency space and use that. As a, but then as a, in the end, sense. in the end, if you've got cryptocurrency, it's only valuable if you can exchange it for something. And that's when it becomes difficult, especially if you've hacked it. 
I also, you, of course, you're right that if you overuse sanctions, and I can remember writing memos and reading, passing on memos about this concern when I was, you know, seven years ago in the in the White House. But I also think that it would take an awful long time. Which I think the alliance, as Adam Posen put it in another foreign affairs piece, the alliance of the West is almost more important than the finance. That you mentioned that the Europeans were thinking we're getting fed up with, uh, especially during 2017 to 2020, with uh, U.S. A policy and wanted to develop some insulation from it. As long as that uh, the euro is conceivably a competitive currency to the United States dollar, but the renminbi just isn't unless China wants to open up its capital account, and nor is the yen. So. I think that those concerns are overblown. I think your earlier point, which is that it doesn't behove the America and its allies to become too sort of preachy, because it's true that you know hypocrisy can be pointed out, and I think it's very that's why it's great having, in a way, having Zelensky as the as the sort of person who's making the case for support of Ukraine. And, uh, and then the horrific stuff that is going on on the ground there, that is much more of the moral case, I think. This is uh, the point when in our podcast, we uh, take a brief break, say goodbye to the folks who are joining us from the general public and say, if you want to hear the rest of the podcast and this one, we're going to talk a little bit more about the longer term consequences of this. Then all you have to do is go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership and become a member for roughly the cost of, I don't know a latte a month, and you can help support what we're doing. And you can get all of these podcasts and all the other stuff that only members get. So go do that. And for the rest of you who are members, just hang by and we will be back in one moment. <laughs> 